Hello, you are listening to the Higher Intelligence Podcast presented by My Working Soul. On this show, we're talking about the truth and how to draw the boundary between professional and private existence. This is Water Cooler Conversations, a compilation of opinions about work, including so-called LinkedIn for dating, intimacy with coworkers, and pop culture hot topics. What is appropriate to talk about at work, and what are the benefits of saying how we feel when we feel it? Is transparency a good thing, and should we ever consider those we work with our real friends? In a time where our electronic devices listen to our conversations, record keystrokes, and store our opinions about products, events, and society, it's important to contemplate freedom of speech and the significance of truth-telling in an age of misinformation. The truth is inside of us, and it's wonderful when we have the courage to tell it. What if I were very, very sad, and all I did was smile? I wonder after a while, what might become of my sadness? What if I were very, very angry? And all I did was sit and never think about it. What might become of my anger? Where would they go and what would they do if I couldn't let them out? Maybe I'd fall, maybe get sick or doubt. But what if I could know the truth? and say just how I feel. I think I'd learn a lot that's real about freedom. I'm learning to sing a sad song when I'm sad. I'm learning to say I'm angry when I'm very mad. I'm learning to shout, I'm getting it out. I'm happy learning exactly how I feel inside of me. I'm learning to know the truth. I'm learning to tell the truth. Discovering truth will make me free. Are you discovering the truth about you? Well, I'm still discovering the truth about me. That's what we do as we keep on growing in life. Ryan is the co-owner of Offensively Creative and 190 West. He is most famous for being America's sweetheart and one-third of the Eric and Rodney show with Robin, a daily LinkedIn live show that tackles the news, interviews interesting guests, and solves the world's problems. 
His talent for provocative storytelling is a combination of heartfelt wisdom, hilarious truths, and what he calls weird stuff. A self-professed attention seeker, his ability to make sales easier through innovative marketing stands out in a vanilla world of ho-hum messaging. Our conversation opens with a controversial topic of LinkedIn for dating, highlighting the differential norms of each generation's communication style online, especially on social media. We also discuss the implications of cancel culture and whether or not it's a good idea to be fully authentic at work. Before we begin, a quick note. This episode contains offensively creative language and some content that may be deemed inappropriate for younger audiences. Please use your discretion before moving forward. If you are someone that is easily offended, we recommend that you change the channel. Hello. Welcome to Higher Intelligence. Today, we're really excited to speak with America's sweetheart, Eric Ryan. America's sweetheart, Eric Ryan, welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Nothing is ever, this is the pinnacle of my life. After this, it's all downhill. So I appreciate you facilitating this for me. What a, what a beautifully positive way to start this by saying well, it's all downhill. <laughs> On that note, Eric Ryan is the co-owner of Offensively Creative and 190 West. Just to start off and introduce our listeners, mm -hmm. what is Offensively Creative and, and why should we care? Uh, well, no one should care, but if you do. Um, so yeah, so I co-own uh, 190 West as well. So 190 West is a traditional digital marketing agency and we do all the boring stuff like SEO and PPC and content and uh, marketing automation. But I'd always come up with these great ideas and then the client would go, yeah, I like it, but we're never going to do it. So I considered instead of trying to make boring clients do interesting, I would just find fun clients who wanted to do interesting. So I spun off another agency and it's called Offensively Creative. And um, the goal is to do weird marketing stuff, like the stuff I got into marketing to do. When I think marketing, I mean, it's, it's this huge amorphous, like, stratagem to me you have demand yeah. generation um right. you have marketing automation yeah. when you distill what marketing means to you what comes out like why why marketing for you in your life i think somebody said that uh i think the easiest definition is marketing makes sales easier right so by the time i hand it over to somebody who's going to clear uh, seal the deal they should know who we are know what our messaging is but essentially i think the part of marketing that appeals to me is the attention grabbing I think it's so easy now because people are so boring. Everything is so bland and vanilla and terrible that even if you're 10 degrees left of center, particularly in the B2B space, you can make a lot of noise. So I'm just desperate for attention in my normal life. And I figured this was the only profession that celebrates the desperation of attention. Awesome. Well, <laughs> I, I haven't met you in person personally yeah. yet, but I feel like we're best friends already. So yeah. I feel comfortable being completely honest with you and saying that there's so many different people on LinkedIn saying, I can help you with, with this marketing that you need. Yeah. And it's hard to stand out. And you, you stood out to me with, with just mm -hmm. the, the name America's Sweetheart alone. But oh, like, you. how do yeah. you contend with such a saturated marketplace of competitors? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it is because, so here's the thing with LinkedIn. LinkedIn, I don't know if you've done CrossFit or ever been to a church or anything, but these, there's, I don't like these environments where people, I can't tell if you're acting like if, if I'm dealing with you or if I'm dealing with you because you are on LinkedIn and that's your persona. 
just like church. Like, are you being nice to me or are you being nice to me because Jesus told you to? Same thing with CrossFit. Like, I go, went to CrossFit for a month and everybody's like, you can do it. I'm like, I'm, first of all, I'm not sure I can. Second of all, are you flirting with me? Because in the normal world, nobody's that nice to you. So I think people act in a very certain way, given their environments. So LinkedIn is tough because everybody acts how they think you should act on LinkedIn. So it's very noisy and people are doing the same things like tips and tricks. And this is how I made $100,000, blah, blah, blah. They might be right. I don't know. Nothing's binary. But I think being normal and on and like a real person on LinkedIn helps stand out. I mean, you got to do some wacky. Shit. You got to call yourself America, sweetheart. Um, I, I, can't, I really can't. I'm with you. I can't tell if it's real or if it's not. The water is very muddy on LinkedIn. I think it, the water's muddy in any social media. Everyone's pretending that they're more than they are, more interesting than they are. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I wish I had That's a better honest. answer. I know we're good. I don't know if they're good. You know? Ah, okay. And do you, the volume of your connections that you make, is it, is it on LinkedIn or is it by some other venue? Um, well, the way I got you is that I sent you a weird DM. So I have weird DMs going out, <laughs> automated. Uh, so the majority is, yes, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a conservative effort to get more LinkedIn followers because I don't know if you know this. Oh, wait, you've been on my show. You do. I have a daily, uh, LinkedIn live all in the, all in the idea that we would stand out if we did this. Cause nobody else is doing daily LinkedIn lives, but yeah, so it's weird DMS. It's posting interesting content. That's different than the normal stuff. It's going live every day. Um, but yeah, everything on LinkedIn has come from LinkedIn. Although Sometimes in the wild, like I went to a cookout and a couple of people had mentioned things I'd said on the show and they're not on LinkedIn. We simulcast on Facebook. So I just think uh, the internet is a very crowded place. That's so you're not only, you're not only competing with your competitors in your space. You're also competing with sports scores and candy crush and only fans. So you got to be loud and everywhere. <laughs> well, that, uh, that brings up a topic that I was saving for the end, but since you mentioned it, I was looking at your YouTube channel and I saw this glorious, I'm going to call it a featurette. And it was all about LinkedIn for dating. Yes. <laughs> like I forget what you call it. Like, can you, can you intro the listeners to that? What, what is LinkedIn for dating? I think this came to me when I was drunk as most things do, but, uh, like, I've been with my wife since 1999, which I'm sure you weren't even born yet. It's, it's a very long time. But uh, the, the idea of uh, online dating is so appealing to me. Like when I was a kid, you'd have to do crazy stuff, like go up to a chick at a bar or something or in class or the dorm room. I don't know. I got drafted early in my career. Uh, but now you can just go on, <laughs> just go on the apps yeah. and these people are single and they tell you about themselves and there's pictures. It's, it's unbelievable. But I think they should do it on LinkedIn because everyone has a job. You know what I mean? It seems like a very professional, nice environment. Some of these other sites seem very creepy, but I think if LinkedIn opened a dating app, we could have something. A lot of expensive divorces. So then you could do LinkedIn divorce lawyers. I just think it's, oh. it's a brilliant idea. <laughs> they, their product team really needs to contact you. <laughs> the whole the whole thing is terrible. Their, their marketing, their advertising. But I here's mean, the other it's... thing about LinkedIn. It would be very mm -hmm. honest because you could go back, you could see their resume, which is, I think is very important, right? Like if you're dating somebody in your forties, you want to see a resume, don't you? You want to make sure they can hold down a job. Yeah. And I mean, this brings in like kind of an ancillary topic in terms of like how different generations relate to one another online. And if yeah. you're speaking particularly about LinkedIn as a platform and the type and tenor of connections that are made there, and then bringing in this other thought bubble of yours, which is LinkedIn for dating. <laughs> right. It's interesting because in my experience, I'm a LinkedIn lurker. I'm always mm. on LinkedIn too. And I noticed that 
it seems to me that there's a differential way in which uh, various generations represent themselves on all social media, but especially on LinkedIn. What, what do you think about that? I think the intergenerational thing is is fascinating. So I just think for, for most of humanity, like what if humans been around for 200,000 years, something like that? For generations, like if you were a farmer, your father was a farmer, your grandfather was a farmer, everybody was a farmer forever, forever and ever and ever. Nothing really changed. And then 100 years ago, everything fundamentally changed forever, right? Like the light bulb. Nobody thinks about this. The light bulb came around. Now you could party at night. It used to be the sun went down, you went to sleep. Now there's things like the third shift and staring at your phone at 3 a.m. So like life is so different and moving uh, in such an incredible pace that I don't know how generations are going to relate to each other at all. And I think older people, um, I think like Facebook is probably the, the greatest example of old people doing weird shit online, right? <laughs> I, I reserve no judgment. <laughs> yeah, posting the same profile picture 75 times in a row because they don't know what the hell's going on, right? Like well, it's, I mean, my mom may or may not be on Facebook. So <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like no comment. But I mean, that's why I think what offensively creative does is so important. I, I see it as this beautiful way to use culture and various modes of communication, different platforms too, to yeah. unite generations because there's another awesome piece that you did about coffee, which oh, I really, yeah. really love. Yeah, and um, I, I really appreciated how you hearkened back to these traditional like marketing models, I'll call them, and brought that into the present day. And that's yeah. something that I noticed that you do really well. I mean, can I can you go behind the lens of how you came up with that? Yeah, so I think um, I think everything needs a hook. I think people have forgotten about the idea of the hook. Like for generations, if you're going to sell something, it needed to be a jingle, it needed to be an interesting commercial, it needed to stand out from the competition. And we sort of inherently knew this, I think until the internet came along. And then everybody was like, holy shit, you just write a couple blogs and then people go to your website. So creativity fell out you know, of favor. What fascinates me about these old commercials are, although they're wildly creative in a sense, they're also just so bad in terms of misogyny and selling cigarettes to children. And there's something inherently funny about this, but it's also awful. So I think you need to, you need to acknowledge that we've gone away from some really traditional uh, means of marketing that worked really well. Just can we just forget about this misogyny for a second? Forget about the racism. Forget about you know trying to sell cigarettes to children. But like the idea of a, a hilarious commercial to sell anything, we should be doing that. Dollar Shave Club came the closest to that in the modern era. They did a, a wildly funny commercial that people wanted to watch and only wanted to watch shared with other people and then bought. But nobody does that. You know, these days, especially on LinkedIn, everyone tries to bore you into buying their product. You can't bore anybody into buying your product. You can only entertain them or interest them into buying your product. That makes so much sense. And it's interesting. We're in a hyper polarized environment in terms of messaging and marketing and implicit messaging yeah. in marketing is really, really interesting because when you go back to the past and the fifties and you see like now in retrospect, like, oh, selling cigarettes to children, that's not good. But right. I doubt that people, consumers at that time, straightforward knew that that's what they were buying into. Intriguing. <laughs> they didn't know. And there was such an like, uh, it's sort of a, like, I don't give a ism, but it was also like, I don't know enough to give a ism. But I, I like the idea that it was just unrestrained, that they could do anything. And today we're so restrained. We're so cognizant about offending people and we don't want to do any of that. And I think that's, that's healthy. But in the same token, everyone always seems to be afraid of the invisible third party. So like, I get this a lot of my show because I say a lot of 
controversial things. The thing that electrifies most people is my criticism of Donald Trump. People will go like, well, most business owners are Republicans. Aren't you afraid of offending them? I'm like, no, I'm not. I just, I can't, I want to get their attention. Most of my friends, I wouldn't say most, but like um, a healthy amount of my friends are Republican and we can debate and we can, whatever, we can argue. But at the end of the day, we're friends. And I think most people don't have to be as uh, cognizant of people's sensitivities as they are. Mm-hmm. We're, t- we're tougher. Again, don't sell cigarettes to children, but <laughs> you, can, you can get closer to the middle. You know, you can say some things that have some flavor or you try to make people laugh or try to turn people on or, you know, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Just don't go too far. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Don't be a racist. Don't be a misogynist. Don't sell bad things to kids. And I think after that. I appreciate that. You know, for me, what I'm in the context, my my professional career is built in human resources. So I'm always like riding that line (laughs) between between, like really thinking about discretion and and a professional and, and tactical way, but also understanding my I'm a card-carrying millennial is what I always like to say. So I do fall into this generation that, for better or for worse, has really cultivated this like kind of cancel culture environment, yeah. so to speak, where you have to be really careful about what you say. So I, I feel a lot of that pressure. And what I default to is I try to learn about the history of something first. And I also really try to ask a lot of questions in terms of, okay, like if we want to talk about, you know, controversial subjects like Donald Trump, I think Mm -hmm. that it's, it's not an argument to say that he is a pivotal figure in American history. And that's, that's a safe statement. What do you think about that? Uh, he certainly, you know what? I just, I had this argument on Saturday, as a matter of fact, like somebody, they went above pivotal. I forget the word they used, but um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was too too much, too grandiose, and we fought about it. He got very heated, and uh, like I I didn't take offense, but I think other people in the room were very uncomfortable with how we were going at it. Um, I think the millennials and, I, and the generational thing is so weird because not not every group of people, like not all millennials, are the same, right? Like I know mm-hmm. you, there's like some core things about the boomers and Gen X and millennials that are certainly true, but I've met some real millennials that say awful things too right so it's not like you don't exist (laughs) yeah the exceptions the exceptions hearkening back to the subject of this podcast which is about work for workers when you're thinking about cancel culture and being politically correct at work do you eric do you think that it's it's safe or advised to talk about controversial things at work or is that best reserved for your personal life Whatever I think is. you sh- I think you <laughs> should be able to. I think you probably shouldn't. <laughs> so here's the thing. Mm. At what point we were up to 11 employees. One of those empl- so we bought the company from the previous owner. One of those 11 employees turned to me in for something I said and I don't even remember like I have no record I say so much stuff that it's hard to <laughs> so I had to be talked to by the owner. He's like you said something uh, and I was like ah, all right, yeah, I guess I did. I don't want to offend but I also don't want to censor myself. Like I'm at work mm. 8 hours a day. I think most people operate best when they don't have to filter everything they say. Not that you should be openly dickish for the sake of being dickish, but I also don't want to be under scrutiny for things. For like, I should. Donald Trump was a part of life. I'm allowed to have opinion about him. I'm allowed to vocalize that opinion, you know. And I guess at work, maybe sometimes you're not supposed to, but it just seems like then you get a real dulled down version of who you are. It's hard to establish relationships with people if you're a dumbed down version of who you are. I don't know. I don't like it. Like it, again, I think there's a line. And that line is fluid, obviously. But you can, you, we should be able to discuss politics. Certainly in the United States. Don't you think? 
I, I think that there has to be a respectful vocabulary that we can cultivate together where no one feels disrespected, but that's going to vary from organization to organization. So right. trial by fire, I guess. But Eric, because you are so comfortable and awesome at talking mm. about offensively creative topics, I would yes. love to just try your ear <laughs> on a couple of them because I know you're good at this. Are you, are you game yeah. for that? Yeah. What are we doing? Sure. Let's go. Awesome. So the first topic I wanted to bring up is Jonah Hill. And to give you a preview of that, Jonah Hill is a, a movie star. He's been in Superbad, Wolf of Wall Street. I believe he was the director of his own film, which is called Mid-90s, had to do with skateboarding culture growing up. Um, so he's definitely a well-known Hollywood figure. And yep. uh, I think it was actually today that some news came out and it was some screenshots of text messages that were released between he, him and a former female companion. But what are, what are your thoughts on that? Did you hear about that? I did hear about it. I read the, uh, I saw the screenshots. Um, here's what I feel about Jonah Hill. And actually we discussed this on my show today. Oh. Um, this is, this is probably controversial, but Jonah Hill, I just, okay. I, I don't want to necessarily pass judgment, but he's got a little bit of that Harvey Weinstein in him. And let me explain when you are, okay. So he's famously overweight, right? Like he was the funny fat guy in a bunch of comedies, right? Like we all, that, mm. and he, he did not like that. He was the funny fat guy. I know this because I've watched his uh, documentary on therapy when he goes to therapy. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking out of class here when I say that he did not like that he was the funny fat guy, despite all his success. What happens with these people like Harvey Weinstein and Jonah Hill is I feel like they feel rejected by women because they can't get anywhere with them based on their looks and levels of success where they are at a certain moment alone. Then when they get that success and that power, they abuse the out of it. And I think that's what Jonah Hill did here. Like under no circumstance should you tell a woman who she should be hanging out with and what she should be taking pictures of, especially when you got with her under the pretense of being a surfer, taking pictures of her, whatever. She was that person. You decided to date her and now you're telling her she can't be the person that she was before you started dating her. Categorically horrific. I, I mean, I respect and appreciate that perspective. I don't, I'm a little neutral because I, I mean, I'm American, so I'm like court of law. Uh, well, she obviously feels very uh, strongly about this. Now, there's a little bit of a, like, it's been, it was two years ago, right? Uh, the, mm -hmm. the tweets are two years old. So I'm not sure what happened in her life that she felt compelled to throw this. I mean, not that two years is a huge amount of time. It's just odd. So I don't know. She was clearly offended by it. I don't, here's, I always use the barometer of like, okay, the way Trump talks to people, right? George, uh, that guy from The Daily Show famously goes out to Trump rallies and then talks to people about their support of Trump. There's one where there's a, there's some guys wearing like a Hillary shirt. And he talks about how we respect women in the United States. And he's like, but this shirt, can you just tell me what it says? So there's a little bit of that. And then he'll talk to people and go, well, he just, he just says what's on his mind. They go, well, does your, does your husband talk like that? No. Do your sons talk like that? No. Does your pastor? No. So my barometer is would I want my daughter to date somebody like Jonah Hill and what he was saying. And they're like, categorically not like, you're not allowed to tell her what to do. And they just felt like there was too much of that in the text thread, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting perspective. And you called it earlier a tweet and then like, yeah, it, it was a, a text. And what's yeah. intriguing about that is is that there's a semblance of privacy in that venue. Right. So just speaking from more of like a like a data privacy <laughs> standpoint. Yeah, I don't um, I don't love that. Yeah. No. And I don't know what her point was. Like you've exposed him as somebody who's I'll I'll be middle of the road and say semi controlling, but what was you're right. I mean, it was a text message that you turned into a tweet. Why? Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think he was so predatory. He wasn't like a Kevin Spacey where you're going to be like, 
stay away from this guy. He's going to lock you in the basement. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, court of law, I wasn't there. Don't know these people. But to me, what was interesting, and I believe that Jonah Hill is a millennial. (laughs) So we can can even tie this back. Um, (laughs) It's interesting. I think millennials, we have a very specific communication framework. And it was interesting to see that interaction spelled out so clearly in communication, like English form. And thinking through that from a relational perspective and going, well, there is communication that's happening here. And most relationships are a two-way street. And one person can say, this is something I don't like. Another person can accept that or decline that. And I just found it a little interesting that, you know, an empowered human being wouldn't stand up for themselves and immediately say no. That's an interesting point because what I did find odd is, so she screenshotted everything. So you can see like the, so she heart emojied some things that he was saying. And I was like, that's sending like, yeah, it was like, why are you, are you okay with this? Are you not okay with this? Because why would you, I I, I don't know. I don't know if she went to therapy afterwards and they explained like, who knows, but it was, yeah. It was a very millennial conversation. It's not, yeah. Yeah. And I mean that, okay. And looping back to relating to people online or relating to people over text when it's not in front of you. Again, I can go back to offensively creative because this is the ecosystem you're in. Is how do we interpret and send out communications that will be misinterpreted in the best way? (laughs) Is that a good way of describing it? Yes. uh, Yes. Misinterpreting the, yeah. I just want, I, being, I want to be a provocateur, you know, I don't necessarily want to offend you, but I want to get to some cert, like, I don't want to talk about surface level stuff. And everybody says that. And it's true. Like, I don't give a shit about your job. I don't give a shit about your kids or your dogs or anything. Like, I really don't give a shit about your dogs. I think being <laughs> provocative gets to a, the more core, like you either, they either get very excited about something or they get mad about something. And then you have like a real conversation and it, you're not going to solve any world problems, but yeah. We no one wants to be provocative these days, and it's it's bizarre, and I think it's not healthy, and I think in the way that Jonah Hill and this chick were communicating feels saccharine, or there feels like there's a filter on it, and obviously it didn't work out. They're not together. There's no realness. Yeah. And I think, yeah, spoiler. Yeah, it didn't end well. Yeah, um, I. That's I the thing with millennials is I, the the idea that you're so careful not to offend anyone that maybe you're afraid to have real opinions on something or express yourself in a way that's not like there's, there's some beauty to rawness, you know, a big fan of rawness. I I hope so. I agree with you. And the next topic that I wanted to bring up with you, (laughs) I don't know if you want (laughs) to, I I have two, so you could go for this one or you could say no. Um, But what is offensively creative about Chris Brown? as an artist, a mogul, and a, and a business. Man, Chris Brown's tough. I don't, so t- for perspective, um, my, uh, my hip hop days, uh, I'm a big DMX fan. Like I like angry rap, you know, like- Can uh, you do the bark? Can you do the bark for us? I won't, out of respect <laughs> for the dead. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you this though. When, okay. So I've had multiple grandparents die, people close to me. I never got more condolence texts than I did oh. the day DMX died. So yeah. I like, yeah, exactly, angry yeah. rap. <laughs> Struggle like Tupac. I know your generation doesn't like Tupac, but I like that angry Excuse shit. Excuse me, I do. Yeah, I like. Tupac. Well, I've heard a lot of backlash <laughs> from millennials. You know, I don't understand Tupac thing. I'm like, uh, all right, listen, I'm. You weren't there. Chris Brown. I. I don't have a, a lot of opinions other than I know he beat the shit out of Rihanna, right? And see, I'm gonna be honest with you. Oh. I 
I care about human beings. I consider myself a nice and thoughtful person. But I mean, when a Chris Brown song comes on, I'm dancing yeah. to it. And that, that's okay, what so, that's what inspired this question. I was like, why do I oh, love yeah, this yeah. so much? Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is the larger question. Is yeah. does the can you sub, can you subtract the art from the artist, right? Because mm -hmm. I think your Chris Brown is probably my Michael Jackson. Not that like all I know is that he beat the shit out of one uh, chick, whereas Michael Jackson banged a lot of kids. <sighs> R. Court Kelly. Of law. Court of law. Court of law. Yeah. But does I mean, Jesus, if you if you can't separate the art from the artist, you're in trouble. Like I'm a huge Warren Zevon fan. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a singer songwriter. I think everybody should love a singer songwriter. When I read his biography, I couldn't listen to his music for five years. He was an awful human being. But then if you, if you, if you apply that to every artist, you're in deep because Elvis, mm. I love Elvis. <laughs> a yeah. He's a piece of shit. You know what I mean? There's so many pieces of shit. And so you have to gauge the level of piece of shitness. Mm, Not that I'm saying hitting one chick is bad. But like, is Chris, are Chris Brown's crimes worse than Michael Jackson's? I don't know where the line is. I can't judge that. But what I can judge is that Chris Brown does fall into the category of singer, songwriter, producer, and people are still buying into him as a brand. Right. People are still buying into him. And you would have thought that his career was certified over after well, that yeah. happened. Yeah, you know why? So. Because he missed the Me Too thing. So I'll tell you, so Chris Brown happened here oh. and then R. Kelly kind of happened here. But then Me Too, have, I'll tell you this, if Chris Brown did what he did during the Me Too movement, the height of the Me Too movement, he would, he'd be gone. Mm. He did it right before. Well, <laughs> that's a creative <laughs> hypothesis. But let's wrap mm. this in work. Let's wrap this in work and bring a cool topic. <laughs> bring a cool topic to the foreground, which is alluding okay. a little bit to the LinkedIn for dating. You know, you, you look at celebrities and a lot of them meet at work. You, you got mm -hmm. Ben Affleck and J-Lo. Yep. You got yes. Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. Yep. Like for us normal people, lay folk, do you think that we, we should meet people at work? Should we be dating at work? Yeah, I think you got to smash people at work and here's why. So I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> okay, why? Why is well, that? Well, as a quick caveat, I thought, I thought marketing was going to be a lot more like Mad Men. Have I mentioned this? Like I'd show up drunk, go to a meeting, maybe have a couple of drinks, sleep with my secretary, come up with a great idea. Other people execute on it. And then I get all the credit. So that's what I thought work was going to be like. As it turns out, it's spreadsheets and you, you offend everybody all the time. You're not allowed to sleep with anybody. And it's outrageous. But I do think that peer-to-peer, human-to-human interaction is so important. I think the problem with online dating as as great as it sounds, is that you're describing yourself. Somebody else is describing themselves. You have no idea who you are. You're hoping for the best, right? We have no <laughs> self-awareness as humans. So then you get people writing their own shit. You think that's right. Then you meet and it's a disaster. If you meet somebody at work and you talk to them every day for a couple of years and you decide, ah, this is the person I want to smash, you, sh you should be allowed to smash them. I don't know why the, the work thing, work is the reason why you shouldn't get together. You know what I mean? You're two humans, two available mm -hmm. humans talking about life eight hours a day for a millennia. I mean, who gives a shit? Okay, so have you have you dated at work in the past in your career life? I have not been single since I was 16. I'm very attractive. I'm very smart. <laughs> I, I haven't had me. You know what I mean? Listen, yes. I went in the first one. All right, so I, I've been with one team my entire career. Um, that's so the way to go. That's the way to that's win. That's the way to go. Listen, this yeah. is, be very attractive, very uh, smart, very funny, and then everything will work out for you. Oh, and I love how you gave your wife. <laughs> so much credit. <laughs> yeah, but listen, she's lucky.
<laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, it, that, that kind of colors your responses in a different way then, knowing that that's the lifestyle that you live. I don't know. I mean, are you really authorized to give dating advice then? No. I'm not, <laughs> no. I, I, honestly, I don't think I've been on a date. In third grade, I brought a chick to the land before time, which is, you know, Oof. you weren't even born yet, but the first dinosaur movie. Yeah, I have no, I've never dated. I don't think I've, well, I mean, my wife, but that doesn't, we were in college. Like a date was what, my dorm room? No, I've never like, do you want to meet for coffee? Like, I've never done that. <laughs> what a creepy voice that was, first of all. <laughs> I got work. scared. Yeah. I tell you, I think on the open market, I would, I would crush. Oh, well, I mean, fire up the LinkedIn. <laughs> you already got a plan. Totally. But you should take your wife on a date tonight. I challenge you because you we can always two, take her on a date. We have two children and that's, that's date prohibitive. But when they get oh. old enough, someday we will. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. Let me ask you, uh -huh. what, how, what, what is your feeling on, well, I want to, the whole thing. Can we, can we go back to the Chris Brown? Do you separate yeah. the art from the artist? Okay, good. Um, well, for me, I can't really separate it from myself. I'm so self-absorbed in this way that mm. when I think of Chris Brown, I just remember that that was the first CD my sister bought. And Chris okay. Brown was her man. So like, yeah. I'm not allowed to like him immediately. <laughs> like, That's her man. Is that man. how that works? Uh, well, like this that's how that's how me and my sister were because we were together all the time and we wanted to be individuals and if we weren't like that i think we would have fought okay. and we we got along well so it was like always kind of just going in in the other direction but that was her first cd that was her man and i just yep. know every song off of his debut album but like that was the age when you couldn't look up lyrics that well like so i was like listening to him and he has this song and i thought he said my AIDS won't slow us down. And I, oh, I went around telling people like Chris Brown has AIDS and we got to support him. Cause I literally, I, I literally thought that's what he was saying. Him? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like he was sick, but I found out he's saying my age won't slow us down. Cause he was 16 when he came out. So, oh, okay. I mean, that kind of gives so you more context. The other direction, because if he's singing that as 45, it's, it's way different than if he's singing. <laughs> oh, you know what I'm yeah, then that would be <laughs> Well, I mean, but then that kind of gives, for me at least, that gives me more context for Chris Brown. And I, I, I have a heart for him because being famous at 16 and, and having yeah, this image that's sexualized. Yeah, because that right. was the type of music he was putting out. So I just like, you can start to draw the line between like, oh, I understand how he might have had a hard time, you know, growing yeah. into a man. So that's, that's my perspective on that. Um, I do. Yeah. So yeah, those wild times, like when I was 16, they put Britney Spears in a little schoolgirl outfit and paraded her uh, around. And I was like, this is great. Cause we're the same age, but it's pretty creepy that producers decided they were going to parade the 16 year old around as a you know, sexual object. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's marketing though, men. right? Was that offensively creative or was that just plain, it worked. um, it, easy? um it was more, I would, uh, I don't want to brag, but I'm not going to sexualize a 16 year old. I have some lines. Mm. That is one of them. Yeah, that's one. I can't support that. And I would no, say Britney Spears think, is taking her power back. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think sexualizing is fine because I think we all sell our bodies in some ways. Some sell our minds, some sell our labor, some sells like if you're hot and you can make, you know, that chick Belle Delphine makes $10 million a month on OnlyFans. What am I supposed to go? No, no. Be an accountant. That's where you're going to find satisfaction. You know? Ugh. OK, well, then what what's your opinion on on bad baby? Um, so she's the meet me outside, be, uh, that, that, that chick. Her government name, I believe is Danielle Brigoli. 
Yeah, she's the one that was on the thing, was threatening people. I mean, what, yeah. what, yeah, famously, yeah, she was on some. What else is she going to do? Is she going to be a lawyer? Is she going to be, you know what I mean? Is she going to go in, is she going to get a doctorate? You know, I'm, I'm going to quote one of my favorite interviewers, Wendy Williams, who, who famously said, we can't all go to Harvard. Exactly. I, <laughs> Which is the same thing you said. I believe that in totality. Yes. And I, I mean, I actually, I truly respect her. Danielle Bergoli is actually speaking at Oxford. I think it's this month or next month. So Get did out you of hear here, that? Right? Yeah, she really no. is. And I'm, I'm excited that for her. That seems like a bridge too far only because she's selling naked pictures. And I want to go like, God bless you. But I don't think you have, I mean, maybe she has something to say that's going to teach the, the youth of America. I don't know. I want to, I want to listen to what she's going to say first. I'm interested how, how she was approached for that, yeah. but I think that's beautiful because I, I don't know where she's from. Do you know where she's from in the United States? No, it's, I, I, I also don't, don't find her particularly attractive, like in terms of like internet porn stars. I don't, I wouldn't want <laughs> like you to, cause I think she's way younger than you. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, you're happily married. You should only find one person attractive in my book. That's your Is one. anyone happily married though? <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll understand yeah. something. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, I <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone, but I'm going to defer to Bill Maher, who is yep. who's famously not married. And he's mm. always asking his guests like about their marriage and he tries to be very respectful. But then he had Ariana Huffington on and she was saying, you should get married. You should get married. And I was like, oh, she's right. I think he actually really wants to get married. You think so? What do you think? What do you think? Here's, here's what I think about marriage. I think 50% of marriages fail, right? Of the remaining 50%, do you know how many stick together because they can't afford a divorce or for the kids or because it's comfortable? Like I do think as an institution, if you're speaking strictly uh, statistically, it's a, it's a terrible bet. It's a terrible bet. Because here's the thing. If you get divorced, this I think it kills a lot of women. This is a controversial subject. If you go through the legal system with divorce, you're definitely getting f-ed. if you if you kill your wife, you might get away with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> <laughs> hope that wasn't a confession here because no axe murdering, please. Because okay. <laughs> I know, I know. Anytime a married chick ends up dead, it's the husband that did it, right? 100 percent of the time, it's always the husband. So I'm, I'm not going to go there. But I'm saying that uh, marriage is an awful institution for many reasons. One of which is that the government's involved, and you can't just amicably break up. It's thousands of dollars for lawyers. You got to split your assets. It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I'm not married, so I don't Mm. know that I have the right to have an opinion on it. I come from a family of divorced parents and I can honestly say, I think that divorce was just the best thing for both of them with love for me and my sister, because they are both such excellent human beings and they're entirely too similar. And that's the whole problem is (laughs) they both have their own justice system. I see it from that lens. And I also see it from the lens of like, the beauty of having a cohesive family unit. And so I, I take what you're saying with, with, with respect. Yeah. Well, this is the thing too, is like, you know, for all the things we worry about children, um, violent video games, lyrics and music, the, the comedy that consume indoctrination, divorce up kids. It just does. Right. Like statistically speaking, divorce will up a kid probably more than anything else. With the caveat that I was raised by my stepfather, he is my father in every sense of the word. I would like it worked out better, way better than you could even reasonably expect if he wasn't. You know, like it's just thank Christ my mother didn't stick around with my biological father. Having said that, divorce is a problem. So I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things. Nothing is binary, right? Like there is no absolute truth. 
Yeah, I think that's incredibly open-minded. And, you know, thinking about our identities, yeah. here's how to do it, right? Like your identity in a marriage, in a partnership is what I'd rather call it versus your identity at work with whatever it is that we all do. Are those, is yeah. that the same person for you or are those different people? You know, what's wild is, uh, so post COVID, my wife started working at home a lot. Um, she's since gone back to the office three days a week, but like the woman that I hear on phone calls all day, I don't know that chick. It's wild. <laughs> okay. I invite people who are married. If you haven't done it already to see who your spouse is at work. So she is wildly different at work and, uh, look, she's very successful, whatever. I don't begrudge her. Do, do your thing. I get health insurance through that company. I think I am very, <laughs> mm -hmm. I am very much the same person. I don't think that that's necessarily the thing that everybody should do. Again, it's not binary. Maybe some people feel comfortable being somebody else at work. I think my mm. wife does. Okay. Well, you know, and this is a good way to, to close this first session. Cause like, yeah. what a great conversation need to do this again. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you, sir. I doff my cap. <laughs> that you can't see right now. But, you know, it's interesting because I do think that people like you, and I'm mm -hmm. not all the way there, like, please stay on that end of the spectrum and I will take baby steps to you. But mm -hmm. I appreciate the, the presence of someone like you in our ecosystem today because it's helping other people keep their voice boxes open because you say such mm -hmm. offensively creative things mm -hmm. that it gives me the power to say slightly less, but still creative thoughts that sometimes I feel uh, maybe don't have a space in the corporate arena. So thank you for doing that. I, I really I, appreciate it. I think we you. do have a space and I think people like you have to do what I do because uh, the, the, the younger generation, you millennials, and you're nuts. Like, I mean that in the nicest way possible. <laughs> thank when you're you. on my show, you, you, I mean, you didn't say like controversial. You said some weird We go, yes, she gets it. She's cool. She's got interesting opinions. Your generation needs more of that. You have to be like more... Uh, I don't think it's a lack of authenticity, but just don't be so careful, you know, like it's, it's, it's okay to offend in some cases. It's okay to ruffle feathers. It's okay to get real opinions out of people. They'll live. All right. All right. Well, you heard it here first from America's mm. sweetheart. Yes. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't care too much and don't worry about offending people. Um, We're great all advice. spiraling towards death. <laughs> Nothing matters. Say whatever the fuck you want. It's all going to end anyway. No one's going to remember you. That's all well, we need. You know? <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, this has been Higher Intelligence with America's Sweetheart, Eric Ryan. Mm. Say it like you mean it. That's a quote from one of my favorite interviewers, Miss Wendy Williams. And in this spirit, I'll say something controversial. Human resources isn't for everyone. Human resources today is misunderstood, and in some cases, even feared. When workers hear HR, they think of consequences, getting in trouble, or even getting fired. HR is broken, but it's not HR's fault, and not all HR is created equal. We can transform the way that human resources operates. We can come together, and we can tell the truth. The truth is... HR has always been fragmented, holding the hands of employees and employers, doing their best to understand the perspective of each side of the business. And yet, in too many organizations, HR lacks real business authority. HR is not empowered to truly care about the outcomes of individual human beings. 
HR is spread too thin. HR, at this moment, is not seen as a resource. This perception gap is troubling. However, it's also an opportunity. HR must transform from a compliance officer to an employee advocate, coach, and advisor. We need a rebrand. The purpose of rebranding HR is that we need everyone to pay attention. Something isn't working about the system of work and how humans engage with one another in the workplace. Organizations of all sizes are experiencing tremendous changes and challenges. As we enter the fourth industrial revolution, we encounter a complete transformation in how work is structured and how individuals connect to opportunity. The challenge to find qualified talent is consistent across all industries. And in tandem, the practice of front-loading education at the beginning of a career through college no longer meets the demands of today's workplace. Today's workers are no longer persuaded that they must be loyal to an employer. The new HR is focused on empowering people, practices, and leaders to maximize human potential, to capitalize on a vision of work that works for all. Today's workers are seeking fulfillment beyond a paycheck, and that is why the new HR is human purpose. It's still important to ask more questions, start conversations, and tap into the lack of meaningful leadership in our world today, within HR and beyond. We must redefine what it means to support human beings. It's time to lead with human connection, armed with data and a diversity of wisdom. It's time to create education that meets people where they are and meets the needs of our world today. The new HR is ready to listen to the people, and the new HR will receive the respect to be listened to in return. The new HR doesn't mean the death of the so-called old HR. Rather, we are calling for a revolution and a new perspective on how to best serve human beings. We are calling on organizations and leaders to recognize the importance of human connection, intuition, without ignoring revenue and results. The new HR creates community and enlarges the idea of what it means to be HR. It's time to leave behind the scarcity-driven, fear-based mindset when it comes to human strategy. It's time to build real trust at work. HR is uniquely positioned to serve as an influential vehicle for human growth, to coach leaders on how to build inclusive and engaging cultures where human beings feel worthy, purposeful, and respected. We need a new HR to meet the modern world with the ability to address economic and operational challenges. We need human resources to lead the transformation to recognize the behavioral implications of work, including the consequences of leadership and stress in the corporate space, especially in high growth and emerging industries and startup environments. We need to pair science with strengths, open up communication, and create feedback loops. We need to make self-awareness the new trend. Employers must recognize the significance of like-minded allies in this new landscape. Work itself needs to change with space and time to address the day-to-day -day kerfuffle of life with awareness of well-being, growth, personal, and professional development. 
the future of work requires a human approach to human resources. This is the only way that HR can establish a true seat at the business table as a key strategic advisor. No one is saying that this transformation will be easy. It won't be for everyone, but it must happen for the greater good of all. If you're in business today, it's a requirement. You need to care about the outcomes of the people. You need to be with the people in order to understand that human beings want to do something larger than their life, something bigger than themselves, something that will affect their community, neighborhood, country, and their world. People today need purpose. It's time to destigmatize the word coach in the business setting. Work is not about pencil pushing, measuring efficiency, or increasing bureaucracy. Work is not about exclusion. Leaders everywhere must examine the type of workers they want. Transactional leadership will only yield more of the same transactional relationships. It's time to cultivate authentic followership. True loyalty comes from mutual service. We are done with check-the-box HR and glorified party planners. A trivia hour will not solve your culture problems. It's about real data and actual education. In business, we need to serve both organizations and individuals, but we need to put individuals first. In return, individuals must be open and willing to learn. We must be brave in saying that the way of work today is not working. In an ecosystem where there is a constant recycling of talent based on prior experience, the value of a growth mindset is overshadowed. Individuals are hired based on what they've done before, and in a competitive hiring marketplace, there are many leaders who have continued on their journey with little to no feedback about their own lack of self-awareness. Finding the right coach is synonymous with selecting a keen and consultative advisor that will hold your leadership accountable. Let's challenge the leaders of tomorrow, and let's challenge ourselves. In what ways can we nourish self-awareness, healing, and truth? The possibilities are truly endless. In listening to the truth of ourselves and others, we can all be of resource, embracing a new idea of work and a new idea of HR, where we all have an equal commitment to collective success. This has been Higher Intelligence, a podcast presented by My Working Soul. See you next time. Learn more about My Working Soul by visiting myworkingsoul.com. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.